0: The key, I think, and the the, the solution to sports leaders is just to be prepared to have dialogue with people like myself. I can understand why there's some nervousness and some trepidation, but it definitely is a better policy, it seems to me, than, than hiding away.
1: I'm Matt Rogan, and this is the Playbook Podcast, where leaders from inside and outside sport share pragmatic advice with us for leading and managing through the changing and often challenging world of sport. Today we're looking at a really critical area of the CEO's new world toolkit, the media. Our industry is increasingly front, back and business page news, and that means we need to understand the opportunities and the risks engaging with the media, not least as they themselves are changing for our eyes. I'm joined for this conversation by a very well-known voice in British sport, Dan Roan, the sports editor for BBC News. Dan covers a wide range of sports stories for the BBC's various news and sport platforms, on TV, radio and online, with what he describes as a focus on the news, politics, business, legacy and lore of sport. You can see him hearing him regularly on the 1, 6 and 10 o'clock BBC News, Radio 4's Today programme, 5 Live, BBC News Channel, BBC World and many more. He also writes extremely well for the BBC platforms online and appears regularly on the Sports Desk, BBC's newest and really excellent podcast, investigating in detail the biggest sports news stories and human issues behind them. Dan's interviewed a real who's who of global sporting names, Tiger Woods, Lance Armstrong, Cristiano Ronaldo, and some famous, often infamous, names in the industry too, not least Bernie Eccleston and Seth Blatter. But today... A slight bit of trepidation, I get to turn the tables to see what we can all learn from him. Damn Roy, been a long time. Thanks for coming on. Pleasure, Matt. It's
0: been he uh, it has been a long time, hasn't it? I don't know how many years. So we graduated when? 90, I was, you were a year above me weren't you 98 for me so yeah it's too long I can't even think about it
1: <laughs> let's let's move swiftly on so listen um, I'm lucky because um, I know you fairly well mostly from captaining football teams together as part of the same club way back when um, and many of us who are listening to this though won't know you and, and will simply have seen you and heard you on, on BBC News and online with your writing and so on So and, and also your podcast so Give us a sense of, of how you get to where you are today and, you know, in 30 words or less, what brings you here?
0: Well, I guess as a child was was just fascinated by the news, uh, had an ambition to one day, it felt like a dream, but, you know, be on the 10 o'clock news reporting on stories. I didn't really have sport as the, the goal at that point. It was just to be on big stories. I just, I just love stories, love the news, love current affairs. I was interested in newspapers and, and TV news bulletins I was quite I suppose I was quite unusual in that regard as a, as a, as a as a young child. Um but you know throughout school and then and then uni where obviously we met uh, I had the opportunity to you know do work experience at, at, at papers and TV channels and wrote for the university paper and I got the the bug you know I got that buzz the adrenaline that comes with seeing a story that you've done published seeing that byline um I was very lucky. I got on. I got onto the BBC's trainee scheme in '98, straight after graduating, which was a, which was you know just for a handful of of kids who could persuade uh, the recruiters that they had they had something about them and had a potential. Only twelve of us a year, and each of us were put into different regional newsrooms. I was sent to Leeds, where I was exposed to you know proper stories, court cases, polit- local politics, which I loved. And um, it just, it just, it just sort of. Uh, I was, I was, I was, I'm, I still am, you know, curious guy who just wanted to learn a bit more. And, and 2003, I'd gone down to London for the BBC, worked as a business news producer, and uh, I was doing a bit of sports writing on the side as a freelancer for the BBC website. 2003, applied to Sky News actually as a reporter, didn't get it, but they put me forward to Sky Sports News and managed to get the job and. I joined Sky Sport News at a time when the channel was developing, and I think it coincided with a with a, a newfound interest more widely in sports news as well as just sport. And I think with my background and my interests, I I fitted the bill. There weren't there weren't many reporters there at that time who who sort of had those interests, so I, I made an impact and I got lots of opportunities to cover some of the biggest stories at that time. Everything from sort of FA scandals to to World Cups and all of the intrigue and, and controversy that surrounded some of those events. And uh, yeah, from there, became chief reporter, actually decided a fateful decision at the time to join Satanta in 2008, um, signed a four-year contract. Within nine months, I was out of a job when they went bust. It coincided with the, the banking crisis. They obviously borrowed a lot of money. So I was made redundant in 2008. Um, pretty scary. But what it did do is it, it, it forced me to approach lots of other media outlets. And it was the making of me, really and I found myself back at the BBC as a freelancer doing hour-long programs into sort of interesting issues for Five Live. I worked for Final Score. I worked for Premier League Productions and it it meant that in 2010 when there was an opportunity I I managed to get back at the BBC as a a fully-fledged sports correspondent which I I dare say had I not left the place uh, seven years earlier I would never have done because of the size of the BBC and how how much harder it is to make your mark there. I, I had to leave to go and prove myself and then very fortunate to be able to come back, but uh, twenty fourteen, I, I managed to become editor, succeeding David Bond, who he replaced Mihir Bose. So I became the third editor. I am now the longest serving, I, I think, having I spent seven years now in the job. Um, and it, and it, I, you know, I've loved it. It's been a it's been a real privilege to do. Um, I've covered. I've been very fortunate that it's coincided with some a, a, tr- a truly remarkable era, I think, for sport which we'll talk about but yeah i I think back often to all the different stories and all the different characters i've met along the way and it it does take some believing
1: and i guess you know it's taken us a while to try and get ourselves in the same the same postcode let alone in the in the same room to do this together face to face and it's just a function of the of of, as you say the tumult that is the the sports news agenda nowadays and i was um I was reflecting on that watching the first episode of the really excellent BBC documentary Fever Pitch, looking at the inception of the Premier League, Uh, not just noticing the way the commerce of sport had changed and developed, perhaps instigated by that, um, or at least encouraged by that, but also just reflecting on the way that the sports media and the news media had somewhat blurred during that time. Uh, do you think the Premier League played a role in that, and are there other things that have created a step change in terms of the volume and, and interest level in a role like yours?
0: Yeah, I do. I do think the Premier League's uh, conception, Matt, and its and its development since uh, was a, was a really key moment in that that merging of sport and news because it, you know, you couldn't cover the Premier League as a journalist without being appreciative of the the phenomenon that it became. How it had been done? Um, the ramifications of its formation, what that meant for the rest of the English game, the impact perhaps on the national team, the globalization that it represented and and the commercial phenomenon that it became. And I think it kind of symbolized for many what sport was undergoing, that some of those forces at play, the desire for growth, the need to to market, to understand different territories. So it, it kind of, for me, Kept me so busy in those years, certainly from the moment I joined Sky in 2003. For the next few years, there wasn't, it isn't every week there was another big Premier League story, but also, you know, you had to be interested in the governance as well, what it meant for the FA, the extent to which other sports could follow suit. So I think that was a really key thing. But on top of that, there were other big stories, I think, which kind of transcended sport. And the most obvious of that, I think there's two big scandals, isn't there? FIFA, which had been sort of brewing from 2010 when, when, Qatar and Russia were handed the right to host the World Cup and all of the intrigue and controversy that surrounded that. It seemed to cut through in a way few other kind of governance stories had. There was a sense of injustice, partly because England had obviously bid for the 2018 World Cup and the involvement of, of royalty and politicians and celebrity like Beckham. I think there was a wider interest in that. The Sunday Times Insight team obviously had spent a lot of time pursuing that story. You'd also had... And that that build didn't it until 2015 really when it reached its crescendo with those police raids in in Zurich. I remember, I remember the night that Blatter uh, announced he was stepping down. I was I was in the newsroom, a couple of miles from here in, in Salford in Media City. It was 4:30 in the afternoon, and word came through that Blatter was going to go. Massive story. It was going to lead the 10 o'clock news, and I was stuck in Salford. And. Um, we took the fateful decision to, you know, and you have you have literally seconds to decide what we're going to do, and, and this is part of, I suppose, of the fun uh, stroke uh, <laughs> uh, for horror of, of the position I'm in sometimes. But we decided to go for it. Get, get on a flight to Zurich. There was a, there was one flight left from Manchester. I managed to um, get there. The trouble was, is I lost my passport en route. I turned up at Zurich Airport at sort of ten o'clock local. I managed to persuade them to let me in without a passport. Uh, which they which they made clear to me at the time if I did that then um, I wouldn't be able to come out <laughs> you know so uh, and but I thought well I was quite early on in my tenure it was I was only sort of a year and a half in I think at the time if that and I thought this is the biggest story I'm gonna cover I've got to get there somehow so I managed to persuade them to let me in and I got to Zurich headquarters at about five to eleven local five to ten here at about five minutes before the live headlines which I was meant to be um doing and then the report And I, we did it um, so that was a bit of a baptism of fire, but I'm not sure there'll be anything quite like that again in terms of uh, sort of uh, time pressure. Okay. But it is a good example of sometimes how uh, you know, and every, and every news journalist experiences those these moments. Um, but yeah, what a story that was, and it still bubbles on. Of course, these stories last for years. They they have their they have their crescendos and their their peaks and troughs, but they they have they have they have long um, timelines. And then I think Lance Armstrong. Uh, who I was lucky enough to interview back in uh, 2014, I think I spent a few days with him in Austin, Texas. Um, obviously, 2013, the previous year, was when it all reached its peak, and obviously the opera, in- the opera interview as well. But I think that, for many, again, just came to symbolise, like FIFA, the extent to which there are problems in sport. It- it's not a bed of roses. There are issues, and I think you know the traditional. View of many uh, news editors, whether certainly in broadcast, has been that sport has to play an important role, which I do understand, because it's escapism, and because it involves remarkable stories of human endeavour, triumph, tragedy. uh, It it provides us with that that colour that is a good antidote to a lot of the stories that come above it in the running order of bulletins, for example. And we've seen this certainly recently, haven't we, Matt? With with things like the Euros and Tokyo, and and now. Meru as well it, it, it is a uh, it's a it's a it's a return to normality it's an escapism it's a light relief but I think what stories like FIFA and Lance do is just remind us that there needs to be some accountability as well things aren't always done right way whether it's you know whether it's ethics or whether it's governance and I think if you are a sports journalist covering those stories what those what they did was 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 show to us the need to yeah, ask the right questions, be interested in the decisions that are being conducted, be interested in ethical debates, uh, as well as performance.
1: And I always wonder whether um, sport is its own little island of intrigue and, and machinations and something's right and something's wrong and the rest of the world is actually pottering on, okay, or, or actually really what's going on here is is sport is just an interesting and understandable entry point for people to... To, to get the heads around some of the the things that aren't being done right, actually in the rest of our society, you know, that might happen in local planning politics, might happen in the economy, might happen in, um, in the city, but it's just harder for uh, the woman or man on the street to get their heads around than it is to look at it within the context of a Premier League club or something. So it is actually just our entry point from understanding the whole of the news bulletin. That's
0: a really interesting point. I think, as well as the sort of controversies I've mentioned, there's no doubt that sport is a... Microcosm of society. It is an entry point for us to have some of the debates that, that we tussle with around gender, around race, um, around the health of the nation, um, even around transport. I mean, you, you look at cycling, for example, and, and, the, and the debate, the, the campaign they are in the midst of when it comes to trying to convince. Government and, and local authorities to devote to devote more attention to to planning when it comes to development for for cycle lanes, for example. You know, sport has an impact on every facet of our public life. From and you and you look at you know the area around participation post London twenty twelve, and and this is a debate we're having right now in terms of how can how can tennis harness the, the radikanu effect? How can we encourage more youngsters to pick up a racket after years of dwindling numbers? And I'm fascinated by all that. You know, sport, it cannot be just about who won, who lost, who got injured and who's being transferred. It That's the wonderful thing about covering this beat <clears throat> is that if you have a little curiosity and a little interest in all these different areas of life, which I do, then it's all there for you in sport. And, and in terms of ethical debates, I mean, you know, look at the Laurel Hubbard story I've just covered in, in Tokyo around, around transgender athletes and, the, and this fascinating debate between fairness versus inclusivity. Now, this is an area of life that that other other there's other arenas in which that's being played out, of course. But I think sport, because of the popularity of it, <clears throat> especially among the young, it is a really powerful thing. And you know, we can talk about this later. But you know, look, look at athlete activism. Look at whether it's Marcus Rashford and child food poverty, or whether it's Raheem Sterling and uh, and racism, Hannah Mills the sailor and, and environmental concerns you name it, many athletes now seem to have a cause. And, you know, I'm, I'm really pleased to see that after a long period of time when I think athletes were quite, uh, there was a lot of trepidation around speaking out about things they cared about, whether that was their agents or their clubs, uh, advising them that, you know, you shouldn't really go there because that will alienate a certain part of the market. I think now it's different, things are changing, and it's going to be really interesting to see. I know you've written about this in your book, Matt, you know, how, how governing bodies catch up with that because um, we are, it seems to me, in a, in a state of flux. But I think it all ties into what you're asking about how many of the, the conundrums and dilemmas that we face as a society, we're having those debates now through sport.
1: And I guess within the context of this podcast that we we create for senior leaders to get their head around how on earth they navigate um, the current state of play leading those governing bodies or teams or, or, or leagues or whatever it might be. Um, the challenge is they don't all have the degree in social and political science that you do, right? So they're all trying to work out how to get their own heads around these issues uh, and then work out how to lead their organisations through them. Um, b- because often I speak as a as a former leader of a, an organisation in sport, often they can, they can feel really difficult to, to navigate in a way that's fair to your teams and fair to your customer bases, uh, and frankly feel pretty vulnerable. You know, I've, i f- certainly found myself feeling, um, sorry, actually for, for some of those senior leaders in the UK who end up in front of the sort of various select committees, um, I- expecting a grilling and coming from that position of, of, of sort of probably feeling fairly defensive, um, uh, and I guess you've given a grilling or two in your in your time, and rightly so. W- what would your take be on on what some good examples have been? So, some people you mentioned a couple to me off off offline who you think have handled things pretty well, actually, in terms of under being realistic about yeah you know, some of the challenges they face, as well as as well as the opportunities they face in this space.
0: I've been struck, Matt, in recent years by the way that the likes of FIFA the IOC, UEFA, have, I think, really struggled at times with some of these ethical debates. So, so, you know, for example, we saw this play out very well during the Euros where you had England players being booed for, for taking a knee uh, before matches. You had issues around racism in certain parts of Europe. You had the decision by UEFA... Around the the attempt to light up, you may recall the, the, there was a, there was a desire to light up the um, the Munich Stadium in the rainbow colours uh, to support LGBT plus interests in in Hungary, and it was uh, UEFA decided not to do it, which caused some controversy and the, and the, uh, this tension between UEFA trying to uphold its values and being and being seen to be mindful of the way the world is going and being progressive respect minority rights, be inclusive, all the things that a modern institution should be and needs to be, while at the same time doing business with parts of Eastern Europe where rights for some people are not a priority um, and there are grave concerns over human rights. And we and we see this as well with FIFA, for example, with, with some of the parts of the world they've taken the World Cup to. We're seeing it with the IOC, whose next Olympics next year will be in, in Beijing, in China, given the concerns over the the treatment of the, the Uyghur community there. And you see this tension played out all the time. I have been quite impressed with the way that the, for example, the Commonwealth Games Federation, are slightly different. They are very open about some of these issues. They they certainly under the leadership of David Grevenberg, who I know has now left uh, the Federation, they took them head on. They, they didn't seem to duck them or avoid them or hide behind statements. They were very happy to discuss them. And I'm sure there will have been times when that <clears throat> wasn't an easy thing to do, where some of their members, their membership may have been uh, slightly uh, concerned. But I think they recognise that you can't duck or avoid these issues forever. You have to sort of address them and be seen to be progressive. Um, and I, I've, I've been quite impressed with the way that they've done that and the way that they've communicated it. Um, in the last couple of days, I've been down at the LTA's headquarters in Roehampton, who are desperately now under pressure to try and harness the, the Emma Raducanu effect and address years of, of lower numbers when it comes to participation in, in their sport, a sport I know you're, you're passionate about. And I think, again, you know they've been quite upfront with their communications this week to me. They, they acknowledge that there's work to be done. They acknowledge that they didn't get it right uh, after Andy Murray leapt to prominence in the last decade. And that wasn't um, uh, maximized in the way that perhaps it should have been. And that it needs to be better this time they need to broaden the appeal of the sport they need to tackle some of the perceptions around the sport it's still seen as too white too elitist um only for certain people um and i've been quite impressed with the way that they've not not yeah that you know they've been open you know i asked for an interview with the chief executive scott lloyd and i was i was given it on sunday like short notice and, and he didn't mind being asked some tough questions about how they've done in the past and how they intend to put it right in the future. And I, I think it's very simple. It sounds very simple, but a lot of the key, I think, and the, the the solution to sports leaders is just to be prepared to have dialogue with people like myself. I can understand why there's some nervousness and some trepidation, but it definitely is a better policy, it seems to me, than, than hiding away. Because... It's only by having that conversation that people like me are educated and learn a little bit more about the challenges they face. I now, I now know a lot more about the challenges that the LTA faces when it comes to growing the sport than I did a few days ago. Because I haven't, you know, in in the relentless news cycle that we have to cover, where you're 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 going from Euros to literally straight into the Olympics to now and the next massive story, a few months ago it was super league and football you know there's every week there's something different probably multiple stories you you the greatest will in the world no matter how hard you try you cannot be an expert in all these sports at any given time so you have to get briefed up again Uh, you know and i've now been reading and learning a bit more about tennis and, and you know i'm now interested again in how much money from wimbledon goes to the lta how much of that goes towards participation is there a need uh for government to put more money in to help when it comes to park courts, the publicly available, often free public courts in parks, because of course tennis hasn't got a Premier League, it hasn't got that cash cow coming in. I know there's a debate around how much money goes into grassroots football as well, but it has one big thing, doesn't it? It Has Wimbledon in this country, and you know, but Andrew speaks to a whole load of other areas of, of interest, whether you know, in terms of athlete welfare, how how is this amazing young talent going to be handled in the future? And we've seen. You know, since since Rio, certainly, I've covered a lot of stories to do with athlete welfare, duty of care, and where there's been certain failings at some of our governing bodies. Some of those stories have ended up in front of select committee hearings, uh, and you think obviously of, of British cycling, but to be honest, you know, a large number of other national governing bodies have faced these kinds of issues. Several of them: British swimming, UK Athletics, you name it. And I think the, the governing bodies that have impressed me. You know, take British Cycling. It went through years of, of pain. Uh, there were some very uncomfortable moments, and I, I was present for quite a few of them. But what has him? You know, I, I thought under Julie Harrington they they got a grip of it. Were more open with the media. Didn't just wait till there was a crisis, but actually were more proactive in having a conversation with journalists like me. When there wasn't necessarily a reason to say let's come, let's let's have a conversation, let's have a coffee. We can now sort of educate you on some of the things that we're doing to make this place better to ensure the mistakes of the past aren't repeated. You know, people like me, that, that's brilliant for us because, it, it, again, it's just about educating us as much as the public. And over the course of time, that will pay dividends. There will be opportunity for me to, it may not be that day or that week, but there will come a time where some of that information they've given to me, I can then extrapolate out. I mean, even on Twitter, I've posted this morning a couple of clips of the Scott Lloyd interview from the LTA where he's talking about funding uh, for grassroots uh, courts. And... I've noticed that's been retweeted quite a few times. It started a conversation between quite a few opinion formers, and that can just nudge the conversation on a little bit. But this is really basic rudimentary stuff. This is just about open communication and dialogue. It's not, there's nothing too high tech about it, but I do think there has been a, a reluctance over the years to, to, to engage in that kind of thing.
1: So if I'm a, a senior leader listening to this podcast, um, what will your counsel be around uh, media training?
0: Well, I think, I think it's a wise move, certainly. Um, and I know one former colleague I know um, has made a very good career of, of, of doing that, offering that service to, to executives. I guess nothing can really ever prepare you properly for the, for the, the pressure that comes with doing something live or for, or for real. And I, it's interesting, I, I, um, I've, done, I've done some pretty tough interviews in the past where where, you know, where I have held people to account and asked some tough questions uh, because I think it's necessary on occasion. But the, the one that springs to mind was last year with Jane Allen, the, the head of British Gymnastics, and now retired, who actually announced her decision to retire mid-interview, funnily enough, um, after, after a, a, a very serious uh, bullying scandal, obviously, which you'll know engulfed that governing body. And they'd been putting this interview off and off, and they hadn't really addressed it. And um, I think the longer it goes on, I sp- uh, you know, the worse it can be. And, and I, I, I happen to know that they they tried very hard to prepare her for that interview, and some of the answers, you know, some people say were they, they appeared unconvincing and a little, a little evasive. So it's an example, I suppose, Matt, of where you can have as much media training as you wish, but you've got to get that's that's not that's not all you have to do. I think I think sometimes it's about just being a bit quicker off the mark and being a bit more open and I don't know I, I, I've i never media trained anybody uh, obviously so I don't know how useful it might be or might not be I'm sure there is some use to it uh, I, I'd certainly get it if I was in some of those positions uh, especially if I was going into a select committee hearing I'd certainly be uh, making sure that every possible question I'd, I'd be uh, it wouldn't come as a surprise because I as you mentioned, they, you know, they can be very bruising and they've cost a few executives their jobs. Uh, I think to, back to Greg Clark, for example, at the FA, the most obvious recent example. Um, and it's another, it's another sort of example of, of we, didn't, we didn't ever really tend to get those, did we, those select committee hearings in the past? And in the last few years, they've become something of a genre in their own right. And of course, the journalists that are attending are, always a sort of um, looking forward to seeing whether or not these, these executives and these decision makers can be caught out. And often they're not. Often they can handle it pretty well sometimes, but there have been some casualties over the years too. But no, in answer to the question, I suppose, yes, uh, I think it, it can be useful, but it's not, it's not um, nothing can prepare you for, for the real thing.
1: Uh, I guess those select committee hearings are an example for me of um, actually where you can have all the training in the world, but with a skilled interviewer, comes down to you know gut fearless the best way to answer something and what I think I'm hearing is is actually just a little bit more detail and openness and candor and maybe slightly less gloss it, it is the way to handle things in this in this world in which we live in because frankly even if we wanted to hide behind something um, that is not the world we live in nowadays where employees or um, fans or supporters expect a direct link and to be able to hear directly from from those that that are accountable. Whether that's the person running my late train today, or whether or whether that's a, a sports person or, or an administrator. Yeah. Let's move things on slightly. I, I guess um, one of the things you've been involved in recently um, is is having the chance to take some of those conversations beyond the two minutes soundbite in the news of ten shivering outside a range stadium and into um into a longer form discussion and debate with the the sports desk podcast which um for those who haven't listened i i really advocate having a listen to and i guess it reflects some of the subjects you're picking for that so i'm a Particularly enjoyed is motorsport killing the planet or helping to save it. The premise of that seems to me to just be spend a little bit more time and attention on some of those stories and, and get into that next level of detail. Is that a rare pleasure for you? And where do you, what do you think that podcast could become over time as more and more people switch on to the broader impact of some of these stories? Well,
0: I'm really glad you've, you've you've enjoyed the podcast, Matt. It means a lot to me. I think. For years now, I've felt there is a real need for a sports news podcast. And I liken it to what politics have done with Brexit cast and then newscast sprang from that. And then we've had AmeriCast. But I think also it's part of another trend within the sports media. You know, you've had the birth of The Athletic, which is very much focused on quality writing. I'm not afraid to go really in depth. And it caters for people who just want a bit more than what they get. On, from the average publication, who, by the very nature of it, can only provide a certain amount of words uh, in a newspaper, and have to be a bit more generic and a, a bit more, uh, you know, uh, broad. And the same, and the same, very much applies as you've intimated to to broadcast news, where I mean, you say about two minutes soundbite. I mean, I mean, no one gets two minutes in terms of. I mean, the, the very rarest occasions, like you know, when I did the Harry Maguire interview last year, when that that gets you sort of four minutes. Uh, you know the, the very biggest exclusives when well, I, I did Sir alex ferguson recently when he brought out his movie um they gave me three minutes on the 10 that night but usually the, your av- your average interviewee will get 20 seconds um maybe Radicani will get a few more than that if I, if we can manage to interview her sometime soon but the point is that it isn't by its very nature very fleeting and that's quite frustrating if you're really into the story but but the reality of the of the sort of a half hour news bulletin is that it is the biggest six or seven stories of the day. And you are vying with, for example, right now, some of the very biggest stories you you, you know you can imagine, whether that's COVID and all of the many, the myriad of implications of that, uh, or whether it's Afghanistan, uh, or whether it's US politics, whether it's the effects of Brexit. I mean, certainly during the Trump presidency, it was a, such a crowded news environment to break into. Now yeah, you are having to convince the editors of those bulletins that, that sport deserves its place among just a few big stories. And that, that's a hard sell. Part of my, One of the biggest parts of my job is to be an ambassador for sport and to sell it to these guys. And I think we've done a pretty good job over the last few years. We've, we've not only been on an awful lot, I mean, I'd say maybe second only to politics in terms of the different areas of news. I mean, I'm guessing here, but we, we provide the National Network News Bulletins with hundreds of packages and lives, hundreds a year. There's not many areas of news that do that. Um, I'm really proud of that fact. And not only that, we've we've brought sports news right at the running orders from the bottom and finally slot up to the top. Not just because of our, our hard work, I hasten to add, but also because of the, the nature of some of the stories we've had the privilege of covering. We've mentioned some of them. But invariably, you, you know, you're not going to get the duration that you'd love. As I said, you're going to get two minutes, three minutes tops, sometimes a bit more. And so... You know, for example, uh, you know, when I'm stood in Tokyo and I'm asked to assess the games, that is very hard to do in a minute, a minute and a half. And I will, I will hit three big points, which give the viewer or the listener an inkling into the sort of the big trends. And it, and it's that is a that is it's a frustration, but it's also part of the, it's a skill. I quite enjoy it. I mean, the same applies to Laura Kunzberg, for example, who has the same job in politics. You know, she's being asked to you know, just give a snapshot of these big themes. And over the course of time, you can sort of, you know, you can build that that understanding and that explanation, but you can't do it in one bulletin. So you need a bit more time. And so for a few years now, I've been trying to sort of persuade people within the BBC and beyond that there is a real need for this. And I think it it was particularly became pronounced after Sports Week was taken off of Five Live, which was the sort of traditional Sunday morning sports news discussion programme fronted by the brilliant Gary Richardson, who's a, who's a dear friend of mine and who I really respect. And I always enjoyed the fact that he he has a fantastic ability to interview both athletes, but also leaders. And he can just switch between the two. And he knows how to hold people to account. He, he's got a wonderful way of phrasing questions. I've listened to him a lot. And I think he's influenced the way I ask questions too. And, and it was a shame, I think, that went. And because I think it's important that, that we have the opportunity to hear from these people. It's crucial. And I think it's good for them too. Um, and so, so, especially after that, I, I, I was I was saying, look, you know, and I, and I think in the end, um, I managed to, to to persuade certain decision makers that it was worth a go. So a few months ago, they conducted some proper um, focus group meetings to see the sort of reaction it might get, and they discovered that there was indeed uh, an appetite for some of these stories in depth, not just not just very short and brief. Um, and there was we did some pilots at the start of this year. And then we launched, um, which thinking about it is, it seems a bit crazy, but we launched just before the Euros began. And we managed to somehow continue it through even to Tokyo. I and mean, I recorded two actually out in Tokyo. But it was, it was, what a privilege for the first time I've got 40 minutes, for example, to discuss Tokyo or 40 minutes to discuss the impact of Afghanistan and sport or, uh, you know, post Ericsson, uh, the, the collapse of Christian Eriksson during the Euros, the, the need for defibrillators. Um, you know, this week, we're, we're, we're talking about doing one all about how can success like Emma Raducanu translate into more participation. Um, you mentioned the one about F1 and sustainability and environmental issues and sport. We've, we've covered a whole host. We're on episode 15 now. And we've it, it's just fantastic because it, it gives me an opportunity to... Go a little bit more in depth on some of these issues, which takes some explaining, but it also gives our guests a chance to show what they, what their, you know, their knowledge as well. In terms of the popularity of it, I think it's going to be, you know, a slow process. We're, it's, we're not going to just spring into the top of the charts and and, and rival, you know, Crouch's podcast um, or that Peter Crouch podcast, I should call it. You know, the, I recognise that, that this area of sports news, it, it is, it is, it is. I suppose there is a community around it. I'm delighted to see there's another similar but different sports news podcast called sport unlocked which which some good good guys are, are doing rob harris and, and and martin ziegler Tarek panja um I'm, I'm curious to know how how where it goes I, I can reveal to you that uh we've got another six months which i'm really delighted by so we've got a six month run and then we've been recommissioned for another six months it's a lot more work but i'm you know, i'm really enjoying doing it and um We've actually done some we've, we've we've sort of set the agenda on occasions. We've we've created headlines. I, I interviewed Andy Anson, the head of the BOA for one before Tokyo, where he revealed that some British athletes were were resistant to the to getting the vaccine, that which got us in all the newspapers. Um, last week I interviewed Carl Darlow, a uh, Newcastle United goalkeeper, about a similar issue about getting ill with COVID and how he was urging players to to, to get the jab, because there is a COVID hesitancy among athletes. I interviewed Alexander Cheferin, the UEFA president, for the podcast. And it's great to be able to say to these guys, look, when I interview you now, you know, we'll spend 20 minutes doing the interview. You'll prepare all night for it, and then you see 20 seconds on the news, and you're probably thinking, why did I bother? Well, you don't have that problem anymore. It's now worth your while. So it's great for me because it, it increases my chances of landing some of these interviews. And I'd like to think that it's good for the listener because it is a place where these incredible stories and issues, which 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 go beyond just our borders, but I think are relevant to sports fans across the world can have a place where, and I think it's a resource, it, it, it has a bit of a, I'd like to think it has a bit of a, you know, a, a, a life beyond just that week. It, yes, the events of that week are the sort of peg, but if you're interested in gender or sport and race or sport and the environment, there is a 40-minute podcast which students or which people are just interested in it can listen to hopefully for for weeks or months ahead as well. So let's let's see where it leads.
1: Delighted you're, you're extending it out. I, I guess it's, um, as you mentioned, some of those sorts of topics are the things I, I talk about in my book. And what has surprised me actually with the book is um, you can think for a certain audience, you can predict which subjects are going to be interesting. They're going to be more interested in, maybe you know, if you're running a session for them, you talk about them a little bit more. And then there are some that, that certain groups hang on to and are fascinated by. And wanna wanted, wanted, so town planning was one that's features a little bit in the book in terms of what happens when retail disappears but groups of kids fascinated by it and i'd never have predicted that Uh, are there any any themes that you found yourself um being surprised by in terms of the initial reaction some you think will fly maybe don't quite as well and some that you're not sure think they might even for something like that be a little bit niche that have just have just sort of picked up people's imagination it's interesting i mean
0: Maybe this is part of a broader trend, but I certainly think that athlete welfare, mental health, is is a big issue of the day, isn't it? And I think because of the, the experiences of people like Simone Biles, but also you know a whole host of athletes have spoken about this. Adam Peaty, Naomi Osaka, um, and now there's obviously you know there, there are concerns about how Emma Raducanu is handled and managed and protected, given the incredible exposure that she's suddenly um, finding herself catapulted into. And you, and you, what starts out as, it appears maybe a sort of relatively niche sports story then can go mainstream in a way you'd never foreseen. So I'd like to think that because of that, that there can be real growth potential for the for the audience of that podcast. I do. I think sport, as we've discussed, you know, it, you know sport and celebrity, sport and the environment, sport and politics, sport and gender, sport and race, these you know, these these are national conversations. You know, take a knee is not just restricted to those of us in the sports media in terms of being discussed. It's it's the main issue on the Radio 5 phone-in. It's what the paper review is going to be talking about. You know, during the Euros, that became a mainstream story uh, and, and a talking point. So I think these stories do have the potential to really go beyond what you expect. I think where there is an interesting challenge, perhaps though, Matt, and I think maybe you've experienced this too, is that, I don't know. I think, I think one of my concerns is that I understand the desire and need indeed to engage with younger audiences. And I think this is something which we see play out not just with the media, but in sports. So you see, for example, the 100 of the ECB, there's new. There's now to obviously talk of a new format with rugby. Uh, and you see a lot of sports and and you, and you saw it play out, I think, very successfully during the Olympics But I was really struck by the mixed gender events, which which I thought really engaged people. I I loved them and I thought this is a a brilliant way, a a little tweak to a format which just engages with a different audience. New sports like skateboarding, of course, and BMX freestyle, introducing us to new stars. Brilliant. But I think there's also sometimes maybe a hazard in that there is an assumption on the part of some that if you are to engage younger audiences uh, when it comes to media, you, you have to keep it more simple, shorter, briefer. It's known, you know, it's been... Disc- you know, dumbing down is a, is a phrase that's sometimes applied, and I think there's a danger to that because we shouldn't underestimate young people they, you know, when I speak to them they love documentaries on Netflix they like longer form programming they read The Athletic and I'd like to think that in time they'll listen to the podcast because they've, they've got a bit more about them than, than maybe some people think and they are interested in sports um, interface with the environment say and what it means for F1 they are interested in sport and mental health and athlete welfare because they've heard of the gymnastics bullying scandal. They know who Simone Biles is and they certainly know who Emma Raducanu is going forward. And, and you know, women's sport, what can she do for women's sport in this country? I think these shouldn't be seen as niche things which are going to deter young people from getting interested. They should be a reason for us to do more on these subjects. And some of these scandals and, and crises are just so remarkable. They're so rich. You know, you look think about the Russian doping scandal that we have. I mean, I had the opportunity to go to America to interview uh, Dr. Rodchenkov, the, the, the sort of mastermind turned defector, who then became the star of the Oscar-winning film, Icarus. Um, you know, just, just the most remarkable story. Lance Armstrong, um, Sepp Blatter. You know, some of these rogues are just <laughs> the most remarkable characters one could ever meet and and, and cover. And, I, and I, I just think these... have the the potential to cut through to younger audiences too we shouldn't be afraid of these sort of stories because they're involving administrators or men in suits the key is explain to people why it matters and i think having that longer form outlet is is a way in which we can hopefully do
1: that i'd echo that i guess i um i sometimes feel like the oversimplification is um and it definitely happens but is is Created for the likes of you and I, as 45 46 whatever we are, slightly balding white middle-aged men trying to get our heads around, change our behaviour, and get our heads around new areas. When I notice, um, I was telling my son last night. You know, we were when we were growing up. Blur and Oasis were drinking themselves to the main stage at Glastonbury. My son's watching Stormzy with a stab-proof vest on the front making a very real, very meaningful social comment in exactly the same place on the front stage. And, you know, I think you underestimate there just because they'll watch the odd 10, 15-second funny clip of a dog in roller skates on on Twitter. That doesn't mean that they're not... um, deeply intelligent and and deeply reflective on some of the hospital passes we've given them in society, whether that's climate, whether that's Brexit, whatever it might be, whatever your persuasion, they're walking into a pretty meaningful level of debt and trying to puzzle out the world in which they need to re-navigate. So
0: if we just avoid these issues because we think it might um, alienate certain people or deter certain people because it's too heavy, it's it's too worthy, then that's not going to solve that issue. You know, that we, we have to be confident enough to... To um, yeah, to not underestimate these guys. So look, as I said, let, let's see, let's see. I'm sure there's some I mean, analysis will be done to see who's listening. Yeah, but the youngsters I engage with and who come to me and ask, and I, lots do, about how they can break into the sports media. You know, my message is always the same. You know, be interested in these issues. Don't just care about the match. Think of, you know, consider what context that match is being played in. Because there's always a bigger, there's always a bigger story to to, to that surface level.
1: Very good. So listen, we're we we we're running to the end of time. Um, one, well, a couple of final questions for me. The first one, um, you are probably the individual I, I imagine drives the most miles uh, of anyone I know in the industry over the course of a, of a year, if you're not on the train. Any learning from you personally in, in doing your job through the pandemic period? Is there anything you found yourself doing differently that might stick in the career of the sports editor for BBC News?
0: I mean, it certainly reinforced me, which I what I already knew to be the case, but which perhaps I sort of now uh know even more and appreciate even more, is just the the value of um keeping active. Um because I think, you know, seeing youngsters denied the opportunity to, to go to their local sports clubs or play school sport, you know, it's only when something's gone that you really appreciate the value of it. And you know, I made a real effort during that time to make sure that that was on the news agenda, that the sport element of COVID wasn't abandoned or neglected, because obviously the focus was on hospitals first and foremost, and then businesses. Um, but I thought it was absolutely crucial that we bang the drum for sport and, and reminded people, you know, lockdown does have a massive impact on participation, and then by extension, the health of the nation, and then by extension on the strain on the, the health service, uh, but also on mental health too. So... You know, I while the job doesn't allow it as much as I'd like, um, it's, it's certainly sort of reminded me of, of the need to keep physically active, and but it is a challenge. I mean, the last the last few weeks have been among the I think it's probably been the busiest time I've ever had career wise. Um, and Tokyo was really challenging because of the, the restrictions that it involved. Um, the time difference, the heat. I mean, it's nothing, you know, we, everybody covering it went through the same thing, That the, the the anxiety of not knowing whether you're going to be pinged or not. And even if you'd be able to come home on time, if you if you actually tested positive, you know, luckily we, we got back, but on time and, and avoided that. But yeah, I mean, and I suppose as well, you know, I've gone through so many years of just being in this position where you just at the drop of a hat, you travel to pursue the story. Um, COVID has sort of put that to a halt a little bit. you know i I should have been in new york um covering raducanu (laughs) all these things become a little bit harder now and so maybe we're going to consider a little bit more, more carefully when we deploy where we deploy whether there's a real need to i mean you saw the bbc cover tokyo obviously pretty successfully from in large part from salford i mean i was there and a few other few others covering the news events um or for the news programs, but but I, I wonder whether we're not going forward, you know, more sports broadcasting may be done from base and not always sending. What does that mean? Uh, it's going to be interesting to see that. But, yeah, you know, I think from a personal point of view, that's the thing. Um, you know, it's not getting, you know, doing, I do quite do quite a few miles. Um, I don't think it's maybe as many as, as some in sports journalism because I'm, I'm not on the beat every weekend covering matches. I, I pick and choose which events I go to. I think the difficult, the challenge for me is that when something breaks without much warning, like nobody could have predicted what happened in in Flushing Meadows. No one, no one would have seen. It's an absolutely extraordinary story. It's, I think, from an indiv- in terms of individual sport, I can't think of anything like this. You know, and suddenly all your plans for sort of post post summer of just sort of easing our way back in slowly we're out the window. And then suddenly this, this kicks off. It's it's fantastic to cover these things, but it is a challenge because you do have to just. All you, you know, everything you had in place is sort of abandoned, and and when you've got a young family, that 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 is there is a there's a bit of collateral to that. So I think COVID is kind of also just reminded me. Look, you know, you've got a part of the job is to sort of choose when to go in and when to not. Um, we've got a really good team of people. I'm very lucky to work with them. Uh, so you know, I have to sort of think maybe a bit more carefully about when I when I go in. But that's um, as I say, that's part of the job. And I've, I've been so lucky over the years, Matt, to just just have a front row seat of so many incredible stories. Um, and, it, and it's as I said, it sort of coincided with a decade when an awful lot has happened, both good and bad. There's been challenges and controversies, but there's also been great success um, for British sport. I think the key now is to try and ch- ch- make sure that that translates into a healthier, more active nation as well. It's been an incredibly successful period in terms of performance, and now we need to make sure that it now has a big impact socially, not not just in terms of grassroots participation, and that's crucial, but also maybe making us advance in other areas, areas of life too. I think sport has a unique um, ability to do that.
1: Well, listen, Dan, it's a fantastic place for us to finish. Thanks ever so much for your time. I know you've got to get back to, uh, to the story of the day, which I'm delighted to say is, is likely to be still tennis. So on that bombshell, thanks ever so much for taking time.
0: Pleasure, Matt. Good to see you. The Playbook podcast is published by SportsPro and is part of a wider series delivering agenda-free, pragmatic advice on how to navigate your organisation through change. To explore the library and find out about the Playbook Lab's Residential Executive Training Program, head to sportspromedia.com playbook.